Hello, welcome back to Joan of Arc. I um, want to say hello to all my podcast listeners. Thank you for always tuning in and following along. I appreciate it. We're now on Supreme in Direst Peril. Another ten days wait. The great theologians of that treasury of all valuable knowledge and all wisdom the University of Paris, were still weighing and considering and discussing the twelve lies. I had had but little to do these ten days, so I spent them mainly on walks, walks about the town with Noel. But there was no pleasure in them, our spirits being so burdened with cares and the outlook for June growing steadily darker and darker all the time. And then we naturally contrasted our circumstances with hers. This freedom and sunshine with a darkness and chains. A comradeship with a lonely estate. Our alleviations of one sort and another. With her destitution in all. She was used to liberty, but now she had none. She was out of the door creature by nature and habit, but now she was shut up day and night in a steel cage like an animal. She was used to the light. But now she was always in a gloom where all the objects about her were dim and spectral. She was used to the thousand various seconds which are the cheer and music of a busy life. But now she heard only the monotonous football of the sentry pacing his watch. She had been fond of talking with the mates, but now there was no one to talk to. She had had an easy laugh, but it was gone dumb now. She had been born for comradeship and blithe and busy work, and all manner of joyous activities. But here were only dreariness and leaden hours, weary in action, brooding stillness, and thoughts that travel by day and night, and night and day round and round in the same circle. And where the brain and break the heart with weariness, it was death in life, yes, death in life. That is what it must have been. And there was another hard thing about it all. A young girl in trouble needs the soothing solace and support and sympathy of persons of her own sex. And the delicate officers and gentle ministries, which only these can furnish. Yet in all these months of gloomy captivity in her dungeon, Joan never saw the face of a girl or a woman. Think how her heart would have leaped to see such a face. Consider. If you realise how great John of Arc was, remember that it was out of such a place and such circumstances that she came week after week and month after month and confronted the masters, intellects of France single-handed, and baffled their cunningest schemes, defeated their ablest plans, detected and avoided their secretest traps and pitfalls, broke their lines, repelled their assaults, and camped on the field after every engagement, steadfast always, true to her faith and her ideals, defying torture, defying the stake and answering threats of eternal death and the pains of hell with a simple, let come what may, here I take my stand and I will abide. Yes, if you realise how great was our soul, how profound the wisdom and how luminous the intellect of Joan of Arc, you must study her there, where she fought out that long fight all alone, 
not merely against the subtlest brains and deepest learning of France, but against the ignoble deceits, the meanest treacheries and the hardest hearts to be found in any land, pagan or Christian. She was great in battle, we all know that, great in foresight, great in loyalty and patriotism, great in persuading discontented chiefs, recounselling conflicting interests and passions, great in the ability to discover merit and genius wherever it lay hidden, great in picturesque and eloquent speech, supremely great in the gift of firing the hearts of hopeless men and noble enthusiasms, the gift of turning hares into heroes, slaves and skulkers into battalions and march to death with songs on their lips. But all these are exalting activities. They keep hand and heart and brain keyed up to their work. There is a joy of achievement, the inspiration of stir and movement, the applause which hails success, the soul is overflowing with life and energy, and faculties are at white heat, weariness, despondency. Inertia, these do not exist. Yes, Joan of Arc was always great, great everywhere, but she was greatest in the ruined trials. There she rose above the limitations and infirmities of our human nature, and accomplished under blighting, unnerving and hopeless conditions, all that her splendid equipment on moral and intellectual forces could have accomplished, if they had been supplemented by the mighty helps of hope and cheer and light, the presence of friendly faces, and a fair and equal fight with the great world looking on and wondering. Toward the end of the ten-day interval, the University of Paris rendered its decision concerning the Twelve Articles. By this finding, Joan was guilty upon all counts. She must renounce her errors and make satisfaction or be abandoned to the secure arm for punishment. The University's mind was probably already made up before the articles were laid before it, yet it took it from the 5th to the 18th to produce its verdict. I think the delay may have been caused by temporary difficulties concerning two points. Number one, as to who the fiends were who were represented in Joan's voices. Number two, as to whether her saints spoke French only. You understand, the university decided emphatically that it was fiends who spoke in those voices. It would need to prove that, and it did. It found out who those fiends were and named them in the verdict Belial, Satan and Behemoth. Hmm. This has always seemed a doubtful thing to me, and not entitled to much credit. I think, so for this reason, if the university had actually known it was those three, it would, for very consistency's sake, have told how it knew it, and not stopped with the mere assertion since it had made Joan explain how she knew they were not fiends. Does that not seem reasonable? To my mind, the university's position was weak, and I will tell you why. It had claimed that Joan's angels were devils in disguise, and we all know that devils do disguise themselves as angels. Up to that point, the university's position was strong, but you see yourself that it eats its own argument when it turns around and pretends that it can tell who such apparitions are, while denying the likability to a person with as good a head on her shoulders as the best one the university could produce. The doctors of university had to see these creatures in order to know, and if Joan was deceived, it is argument that 
they in their turn could also be deceived, for their insight and judgment were merely not clearer than hers. As to the point which I have thought may have proved a difficulty and cost the university delay, I will touch but a moment upon that and pass on. The university decided that it was blasphemy for Joan to say that her saints spoke French and not English, and were on the French side in political sympathies. I think that the thing which troubled the doctors of theology was this. They had decided that the three voices were Satan and two other devils, but they had also decided that these voices were not on the French side. Thereby, Taxity asserting that they were on the English side, and if on the English side, then they must be angels and not devils. Otherwise, the situation was embarrassing. You see, the university being the wisest and deepest and most erudite body in the world, it would like to be logical if it could, for the sake of reputation. Therefore, it would study and study, days and days, trying to find some good common sense reason for proving the voices to be devils. In article number one, and providing them to be angels in article number 10. However, they had to give it up. They found no way out, and so to this day, the university's verdict remains just so. Devils in number 1, angels in number 10, and no way to reconcile the discrepancy. The envoys brought the verdict to Rouen, and with it a letter for Couchon, who was full of fervid praise. The university complimented him on his zeal in hunting down this woman whose venom had infected the faithful of the whole West and, as a recompense as good as promised him, a crown of imperishable glory in heaven. Only that, a crown in heaven. A promissory note and no endorser. Always something way off yonder, not a word about the Archbishop of Rouen. What he was meant to get, by the way, which was the thing Kushen was destroying his soul for. A crown in heaven. It must have sounded like sarcasm to him, after all his hard work. What should he do in heaven? He did not know anybody there. Was he even bloody going to go to heaven? I think not. <clears throat> On the 19th of May, a court of 50 judges sat in the Archiepiscopal Palace to discuss Joan's fate. A few wanted her delivered over to the Seculia arm at once for punishment, but the rest insisted that she be once more charitably admonished first. So the same court met in the castle on the 23rd, and Joan was brought to the bar. Pierre Maurice, a canon of Rouen, made a speech to Joan, in which he admonished her to save her life and her soul by renouncing her errors and surrendering to the church. He finished with a stern threat. If she remained abstinent... The damnation of her soul was certain, the destruction of her body probable, but Joan was immovable, completely immovable. She said, If I were under sentence and saw the fire before me and the executioner ready to light it more, if I were in the fire itself, I would say none but the things which I have said in these trials, and I would abide them till I died. A deep silence followed now, which endured some moments. It lay upon me like a weight. I knew it for an omen. Then Couchon, grave and solemn, turned to Pierre Maurice. Have you anything further to say? The priest bowed low and said, Nothing, my lord. Prisoner at the bar, have you anything further to say? Nothing. Then the debate is closed. 
Tomorrow's sentence will be pronounced. Remove the prisoner. She seemed to go from the palace, erect and noble, but I do not know my sight was dim with tears. Tomorrow, 24th of May. Exactly a year since I saw her go, speeding across the plain at the head of the troops, a silver helmet shining, a silver cape fluttering in the wind, her white plumes flowing, her sword held aloft, so I charged the Burgundian camp three times and carry it. I saw a wheel to the right and spur for the duke's reserves, so I fling herself against it in the last assault she was ever to make. And now, that fatal day was come again, and see, see what it was bringing. And that's the next part of our Joan of Arc. <clears throat> I am <laughs> disgusted, really, in the way they condemned her. That's disgusting, right? They had no evidence. They made shit up. They lied. And they just got it sealed. Just gave it its seal of approval. How? How they can do that, I don't know. Mind you, we're talking about back in days when they would torture women to make them say they were witches even when they weren't. But I'm just, I, um, man, that's horrible. It's really horrible. Thank you for listening and many blessings.